I declare blame real, not me. <laughs> What follows is as much historiography as it is history, because the modern study of Kabbalah has a plot with its own personalities, internal developments and ideologies, which have influenced how Kabbalah has been perceived historically. The study of Kabbalah in the last couple of centuries cannot be separated from significant social, political and cultural phenomena, such as the Enlightenment, Romanticism and Nationalism, which for ideological reasons have often been the cause of considerable distortion and bias in the way Kabbalah has been presented. Because of its mystical leanings, its particular world of images and language, and affiliation with eschatology, messianism, and magic, Kabbalah has been the subject of much criticism, which has led to misconceptions about its nature, purpose, essence, and place in the texture of Jewish life over the ages. Thus, the issue of how Kabbalah moved from the private to the public sphere, or whether it was esoteric or exoteric in the 13th century, is involved and complex, and necessitates questioning the motives and methodologies of both the Kabbalists themselves, as well as Kabbalah's modern-day scholars. In the mid-1230s, Isaac the Blind, a Kabbalist living in Lunel, and a, a Sion of an important Provençal rabbinic family, sent a letter to Nachmanides, the leader of the Jewish community in the Crown of Aragon, and also a Kabbalist, containing the following. I saw wise men, men of understanding and piety, engaging in long discourse, who have written great and terrible things in their books and epistles. And once something is written, it cannot be concealed anymore, for often it will get lost, or the author will die, and the letters will pass into the hands of scoffers and idiots, and the name of God is profaned. I have heard from the land surrounding you, and from the people of Burgos, that they speak publicly in the marketplaces and in the streets in a confused and hasty manner, and from their words it is clear that their hearts have been turned from the all-highest." This letter provides the background for the emergence of Kabbalah onto the historical stage, and seems to indicate that what was once an oral and esoteric law was now being written down and preached about openly. Isaac is seemingly disapproving of this trend, but he was also guilty of writing Kabbalistic compositions, and in the following generations, many treatises dealing openly with Kabbalistic teachings were composed. These works deal with a variety of different subjects, from, specula from speculation on and explication of the essence of the Godhead, to commentaries on the Torah and the providing of rationales for the performance of the 613 commandments, which are the framework of Jewish life. Yet, despite this letter, discovered by Gershom Sholom as he trawled through the maze of Kabbalistic manuscripts in European libraries, and the abundance of Kabbalistic works and other evidence, which seems to indicate otherwise, the tendency of most modern-day scholars has been to describe Kabbalah in the 13th century as esoteric and the preserve of initiates only. Almost from the outset, Kabbalah has had a checkered history, as it has faced internal and external criticism. As what was esoteric became exoteric, and though Kabbalah sought to portray itself as conservative and not innovative, its claim for ancient roots and for not revealing anything new brought it into conflict with other existing belief systems. In addition, the act of revealing what was considered by some to be the secret essence of the divine and the creation raised tensions within the ranks of those who considered themselves initiates. Christian attraction towards Kabbalah as an ancient law which establishes Christian truths was also Kabbalah's Achilles heel, as some tried to deny it any authenticity whatsoever. Its messianic undertones raised hackles, and the rationalist and the rationalist world of the 19th 
and sorry, in the rationalist world of the 19th century, many Jewish scholars were plainly embarrassed by this irrational literature. And there's a story about Gershom Shalom, who turns up at this library of one of the uh, scholars of the Wissenschaft, or a rabbi who was also a scholar of the Wissenschaft, and he sees loads of Kabbalistic books on, on the rabbi's shelves, and he was delighted to see that someone was studying Kabbalah, and he turned to him and said, look, look at all these books, and everything is fantastic. So the rabbi said, I have all these books. You think I actually have to read the rubbish? <laughs> right? he didn't actually, uh, so he had the books on the shelves, but he didn't actually uh, look at it. Hence, much of the modern study of Kabbalah has been devoted to re-establishing its place as one of the major trends of Jewish intellectual life over the ages. The aforementioned Gershom Shalom, who died in 1982, was without doubt the major figure behind the renaissance of Kabbalah studies in the 20th century and its acceptance as an academic discipline. He worked in opposition to the sires of the Wissenschaft des Judentums, whom he viewed as living a contradiction, claiming on the one hand to be entirely objective in their scientific inquiry, and on the other, presenting a view of Judaism which distorted the past, removed all irrationalism and contradiction, was apologetic, and supported Jewish claims for equal rights and a place among the nations. Sholem, however, viewed himself and his contemporaries as recovering the vitality and dynamic of the tradition from within. And I quote, the new slogan was to see from within, to go from the center to the periphery without hesitation and without looking over one's shoulders to rebuild the entire structure of knowledge in the terms of the historical experience of the Jew who lives among his own people and has no other accounts to make than the perception of the problems, the events, and thoughts according to their true being in the framework of the historical function within the people. Hence, Sholem saw himself as working from within to recover the multifarious traditions and religious forces which were set aside or disparaged by the acolytes of the Wissenschaft. His own personal interests led him to the field of Jewish mysticism. The rediscovery of the mystical currents in religion, as well as the resurrection of the idea of God after the extreme rationalism of the 19th century, made it a legitimate field of study, but as an esoteric discipline, mainly concerned with the mystical approach to the divine. Indeed, in an essay dealing with Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, Sholem wrote, by the term Hebrew mysticism, or Kabbalah, in the broad sense, we refer to the totality of those religious streams within Judaism which strive to arrive at a religious consciousness beyond intellectual apprehension and which may be attained by means of contemplation and the inner illumination which results from this contemplation. In other words, the essence of mysticism is the mystical experience of the individual, which is beyond all rational cognition and belongs to the world of esotericism. However, to a degree, and depending on the historical circumstances, Sholom also viewed the mystics as seeking to engage with the world in which they lived translating their experiences and insights into forces that will galvanize and rejuvenate Jewish religious consciousness. Sholem was well aware of what was going on in the Christian world, as can be seen from just a superficial perusal of the catalog of his library. Moreover, looking inside his books at the many notations he made, one can see the breadth of his knowledge of things external, but of comparable interest with Jewish mysticism. Often in his works, he mentions Christian, I should say in brackets as well, and Muslim parallels, but does not entertain any imminent connection between the Jewish and Christian phenomena. In every historical period, where there were significant manifestations of Jewish mysticism, these developments could be understood from internal dynamics without need for, without need for reference to the general non-Jewish environment. Shalom consciously chose to focus on the Jewish aspect of mysticism for ideological reasons, which were, however, supported, in his opinion, by the conclusions reached from his close examination of the primary sources. In the first place, 
Because modern opponents of Kabbalah as an academic discipline and religious phenomena disparaged it as, a as syncretistic and full of Christian influences, and therefore as not Jewish, Sholom wanted to show that Kabbalah was inherently Jewish and part of the mainstream in Judaism throughout history. In order to do this, he specifically grounded the founding of Jewish mysticism in pre-Christian Gnosticism, and from there, Jewish mysticism developed organically and almost without reference to Christianity. Secondly, Sholom was writing and researching as Zionism was gaining ground and the state of Israel becoming a reality. And many of the texts he published and worked on illuminated central features of this modern-day Jewish revival, from attitudes towards redemption and messianism to the importance of the land of Israel. Thus, it was crucial to focus on and emphasize the inherently Jewish aspects of these mystical texts. Sholom was a superb scholar who did not simply write history from an ideological point of view. To say that would be too simplistic. But he was writing in a particular historical context in which he was very involved intellectually and emotionally. And clearly the scholarly cannot be separated from his other interests. Sholom wrote about 13th century Kabbalah. The Kabbalists were a small aristocratic elite of knowers of the secret sciences. They had no interest in social activity or in broadening their power base. And even more so, they should not be viewed as supporting a view which intended to pursue radical change of Jewish life or its rhythm. This is most clearly evident in the neutralization of messianic activity in early Kabbalah, a neutralization which was almost, but not totally, successful." End of quote. This view was somewhat mitigated in later works, where he described the Kabbalists of Girona as compelled to take a stand against the extreme rationalizing of, of the philosophers who sought concepts and ideas rather than the real presence of the divine in this world. Thus, the practical application of mystical insights could be directed to restoring the vitality of Judaism, undermined by allegorization of the Torah and the commandments. However, for, Sh for Sholom, Kabbalah started to play a major role in Jewish thought after the expulsion from Spain, where Messianism becomes a prominent force. He wrote, and I cite, to a generation for which the facts of exile and the precariousness of existence in, its, in it had become a most pressing and cruel problem, Kabbalism could give an answer unparalleled in breadth and depth of vision. The Kabbalistic answer illuminated the significance of exile and redemption and accounted for the unique historical situation of Israel within the wider, in fact, cosmic context of creation itself." End of quote. In other words, Kabbalah becomes as exoteric when it comes into contact with a national, national aspiration for redemption felt much more strongly after the expulsion from Spain. Though it is impossible to show, though it is possible to show a fusion of Kabbalah, Messianism, and apocalypticism in the thoughts of Abraham Abu Lafia in the 13th century, Sholom tended to downplay Abu Lafia's importance in the historical development of Kabbalah, perhaps because of his willingness to reveal rather than conceal his known contacts with Christians, or because of his later influence on the development of Christian Kabbalah. For Sholom, prior to the cataclysmic events of the expulsion. Kabbalah was mainly esoteric and the domain of an aristocratic elite. If Kabbalah, however, provided an answer to a generation for which the facts of exile and the precariousness of existence in it had become a most pressing and cruel problem only after the expulsion, what then, why cannot similar events, perhaps not of the same magnitude, provide the backdrop for the 13th century as well? The controversy over the study of Aristotle in both the Jewish and Christian world the call for reform of Jewish society, Jewish society in line with the calls for reform within Christian society. Apocalyptic fervor connected with the teachings of Joachim of Fiore 
but interpreted in innovative ways which cut across religious boundaries. All these seem to provide plausible context for the emergence and use of Kabbalistic ideas and teachings in a manner far more exoteric than Shalom was prepared to entertain. If the broader context is taken into account and does not fall victim to contemporary ideological concerns, if the imaginary boundaries erected between societies and religions, mainly for the sake of differentiation and emphasis of uniqueness, are allowed to fall, then the exoteric nature of Kabbalah in the 13th century becomes more explicit. In the generation after Sholem, many of his central theses were undermined as his broad strokes came under close review. New texts were discovered and others were reread and re-examined. For instance, Sholem's thesis regarding the foundations of Jewish mysticism has shown to be problematic, and his claim for increased messianic speculation after 1492 has been revised. However, the external historical circumstances that have, connected, that have connecting lines with the development of Kabbalah have still remained largely unexplored. In addition, the orientation of Kabbalah studies has moved away from the historical method taken by Sholem to a more phenomenological approach. And while this has contributed to illuminating the development and diversity of Kabbalistic thought over the ages, it has set aside the need to contextualize Kabbalah. In this matter, one has to consult the works of Moshe Idel, widely recognized as one of the leading figures in the study of Kabbalah today. In the introduction to his major study, Kabbalah and New Perspectives, Idel writes, rather than concentrate upon the Kabbalistic schools or trends, as Gershom Sholem designated them, and the historical sequence, I will take a phenomenological approach that will deal primarily with the major religious foci of the Kabbalah, their nature, significance, emergence, and development. I adopt an essentialist attitude to the contents of Kabbalistic material that places greater emphasis upon their religious countenance than on their precise location in place and time. The unfolding of key concepts that characterized and directed Kabbalistic activity and thought, their exposition as atemporal modes, and the understanding of their interplay in various Kabbalistic schools is the inner history of Kabbalah or of Jewish mysticism, just as the temporal description can be considered the outer history. End of Though Idel's methodology is more complex, and he does not totally ignore the historical context, the so-called inner history, which comes to light through the phenomenological approach, is the most fundamental aspect of his work. Hence, it is only in the last chapter of his book, Kabbalah New Perspectives, that Idel turns to Kabbalah as a cultural factor and deals briefly with, the emergence, with its emergence in the 13th century. Idel refers to Provence, the area where Kabbalah emerged as one fraught with religious tensions. And in this context, context, he mentions Catharism and philosophical pantheism. However, Kabbalah, unlike Maimon, Maimonidean philosophy, was not implicated in the ongoing polemics because, I cite, it was studied within families and limited groups, making no attempt to disseminate its tenets to larger audiences. End of quotation. Kabbalah was also acceptable because of its, again I quote, deep affinity with certain rabbinical patterns of thought, and therefore not seen as an innovative interpretation as was philosophy. In addition, some of the most powerful members of the Jewish elite were Kabbalists, a factor which would have intimidated critics and tempered any open attacks on this doctrine. In other words, according to Idel, Kabbalah was esoteric and restricted to a small elite, yet there was enough knowledge of its tenets possibly to cause concern, but because its adherents were leaders of the community, there was little, if no, controversy over these teachings. However, as he does himself remarks, by the end of the 13th century, there were thousands of folios of Kabbalistic texts. 
and their authors rarely presented the material as esoteric. Hence, on the one hand, Idel claims that in the 13th century, Kabbalah was an esoteric body of thought restricted to an elite, yet acknowledges there was an explosion of written texts as Kabbalah emerged onto the historical stage. He then explains the sudden appearance of Kabbalah as a reaction to Maimonides' dismissal of earlier types of Jewish mysticism and as an attempt to give these aspects of rabbinical thought new authenticity. In other words, the stimulus for Kabbalistic speculation was historical, but it was an intellectual reaction to a particular inner phenomenon and, does not have, and did not have anything to do with the external circumstances or ideals of social reform. What has been suggested so far is that the study of Kabbalah in the modern era developed in the first stage as part of the nationalistic, nationalistic discourse which sought to recover themes of Jewish history which had been marginalized by previous generations and showed its vitality and multifaceted, multifaceted aspects. Zionism enabled Jewish history to be written critically from within which allowed the creative forces of myth, the irrational and anarchic to surface and take their rightful places. The second stage, which has involved a very in-depth and critical reading and examination of the sources, which has contributed greatly to our understanding of the theosophical, theurgical, mythical, and the ecstatic aspects of Kabbalah. It has broadened our knowledge of the semantic fields, geographic and environs, and the nuances of the different schools of Kabbalistic thought, but it is still written mainly from within the tradition and has paid only lip service to the broader historical context. Thus, the issue of esotericism versus, exo versus exotericism as part of the involvement of Kabbalah has also been discussed from within. And if there have been attempts to link internal developments with the Christian world, it has been done from an insider's perspective rather than looking at the historical context as a whole. However, when seen in the broader historical context of the 13th century, the appearance of Kabbalah, where and when it does, takes on new meaning. One cannot divorce text from context and the Kabbalists were not living in a vacuum, but were part and parcel of what was going on around them. If they wrote texts and preached, partook in disputations, and spread their teachings, it was, this, it was because they saw in them the potential to reform Jewish life and practice, and reinforce the bond between God and Israel. And they were reacting to particular circumstances and to similar stimuli, as were their Christian contemporaries. Clearly, their responses to the challenges facing them were not the same as those of their Christian contemporaries, as their political and social circumstances and their religious premises were different. Yet the winds of change were blowing from the same direction, and the underlying challenges to religious concepts and beliefs were coming from the same intellectual milieu and sources. Thus what is being suggested here is that the appearance of Kabbalah on the historical stage can only be understood, or should only be understood, or should, sorry, be understood as also as an exoteric phenomenon. Jewish mysticism does not start with Kabbalah in the 13th century, but is part and parcel of the religious system for centuries previously. The need to transgress the boundaries between esoteric and exoteric, the need to reveal what was for centuries considered secret and the preserve of an, initi of an initiated elite, the move from the private to the public sphere must be considered as a translation or application of aspects of the mystical teachings to everyday life. Put another way, the moment of crisis described in, described in Isaac the Blind's letter, cited above, can only come about if there has been a major paradigm change whereby what was esoteric becomes exoteric, where there is a real need for what Kabbalah has to offer. Clearly, the degrees of what was revealed and what remained concealed are different from Kabbalist to Kabbalist, but the emphasis is on the potential of Kabbalistic teachings to address the existential issues at hand. 
The sociological significance of the text has to be taken into account, as clearly the need for written texts goes hand in hand with a growing interest in the Kabbalistic approach to Judaism and demonstrates the impossibility of restricting the doctrines to an intellectual elite. The form and content of the written texts indicate that their purpose was to inform the larger community as to the general lines of this approach. The theosophy is vital and invigorating and therefore has enormous social and political implications in providing a radically new but purportedly conservative outlook on Jewish life. However, the importance of the text is also in what they do not reveal. The esoteric techniques and path to mystical experience which could only be attained if one was a disciple of a recognized teacher. Thus, the text performed two main functions. On the one hand, to inform and enrich the Jewish way of life, and on the other, to emphasize the barrier between the general audience and the initiate. I have lots of examples here which uh, uh, show how the, text, how the texts are used. I'll just do one and then uh, sum up. Kabbalistic theosophy also provides a rationale for the performance of the commandments and teaches how to live an upright and moral life. One of the most popular genres of Kabbalistic writing during the 13th century are treatises on the Ta'ameh HaMitzvot, explications of the commandments, and these stress the theurgic effect the performance of the commandments has on the Godhead. In other words, there is an emphasis on the imminence of the divine and the close connection between the Jew and God. In this context, the writing of Ezra of Girona, one of the Kabbalists criticized by Isaac the Blind in his letter cited earlier, is particularly pertinent. His commentary on the Song of Songs was written in the build-up to the year 1240 AD, 5000 Anamundi, according to the Hebrew reckoning, the start of the sixth millennium, when according to rabbinic tradition, the final redemption would occur. There is an intimate connection in the commentary between the coming redemption and the revealing of the secret teachings emanating from the Sefirah of Chokmah, wisdom, concealed in the book hidden for many generations, and the expectation of the coming redemption is caught up with the performance of the 613 commandments. Ezra writes, quote, it is incumbent upon us to engage in a detailed inquiry concerning all of the commandments, to find an allusion pointing to them in the 10 divine statements revealed at Sinai. We should interpret each and every commandment in accordance with our path, determining from which Sefirah it derives. And in the continuation, an individual who performs the command of his master and fulfills it does so as a consequence of the attribute of love, which is the greatest degree and best attribute, and that corresponds to the category of the positive commandment. And he who desists from doing something from fear of his master does so from the attribute of fear, which is lower than the attribute of love, in the same manner that the negative commandments are on a lower level than the positive commandments." End of quote. Ezra is referring here to two different divine attributes of the Godhead, which are influenced by a Jew's correct performance of a positive, of a positive commandment and care not to transgress the negative one. This places the whole of Jewish life into an easily comprehended framework, which puts the responsibility for the well-being of the divine into the hands of each and every Jew, and also emphasizes the intimate connection between the commandments, the spherotic world, and the expected redemption. It is impossible to speak about the Kabbalists as if they were one monolithic group. There were different groups of Kabbalists with divergent traditions and teachings, each propagating their own worldviews. However, their appearance on the historical stage can only be understood in the greater historical context as a Jewish minority in a Christian world bordering and still influenced by Islamic thought, 
attempting to find the balance between esotericism and exotericism. The travails of the times are the catalyst for members of these different schools for reinterpreting inherited traditions in light of rapidly changing social and political contexts and adapting, adapting them to the need of their communities. The Kabbalists tried to use the power of revealing what was secret to force political, social, and religious change, and by doing so, create a platform for communal reform and deliverance from exile. 